everybody. Welcome to Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball podcast. My name is Jeff Paulson. Sitting right across from me in the luxurious Two Strike Noise studios is Mark A. Johnston. Say hello, Mark. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and not forgetting about us. Yes. So uh, as as I mentioned, this is our uh, weekly baseball podcast where we talk about all things baseball. Now, Mark, usually I get my podcasts mixed up because I, I, do, a, I do a lot of podcasts. Yes. Uh, and you always, what was the last count? 72? 72, yeah. And generally, you have to remind me what I'm doing today. Right. Uh, but not today because I, I have some potentially big Ricky Henderson news that, of course, we need to get right into. And that precludes me from mixing up any shows. Oh, uh, that makes total sense. Is he coming out of retirement? Uh, no, but the, the big news this last week is he, he might have a new job. The uh, the Ricky Henderson uh, Toy Story four story that's been going around what? Uh, the last uh, the last week my my DMs were full late last week uh, of people forwarding this to me and there's a lot of rumors right now floating around the internet uh, after Pixar released some stills from the upcoming Toy Story four movie and yeah. in one of them there is a bobblehead. Uh, standing right next to Woody, a- and this bobblehead is a is a baseball player dressed in a 1979 A's jersey, which was his rookie season, and he's got his hands above his head in a similar pose. Do you know when Ricky broke the record, he he held his hands up above his yes. his head like wow. that in celebration. There has been no confirmation that Ricky has anything to do with this movie. Hmm. I, I all I'm seeing are stories saying Ricky Henderson's in Toy Story Four. There has been zero confirmation. It might just be an homage to the A's. And I did read that one of the producers is a big A's fan. Oh, there you go. And of course, Pixar, the Pixar campus is right here in the East Bay. It is five Bart stops from the Coliseum. Oh, so nice. they, okay. and they do Pixar does tend to put uh, kind of some East Bay Easter eggs in all of their movies. So do. I don't know. We're, we're waiting for some more confirmation on this. I would, I, it would kill me if he had a speaking part. I would absolutely love that. That would be like the greatest. That would, it, oh, that's a good one right there. Maybe that's all he says is <laughs> you like I'm that? the greatest. Dude, that's awesome. I did, I did do a little bit of research, though, uh, on the Pixar campus because it's here in Emeryville. Like I said, it's, it's in the East Bay here. And part of their campus is actually located on the exact site where the Oakland Oaks of the old Pacific Coast League used to play, where their stadium was. No kidding. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. So I'm interested to see if this is just a cool shout out, you know, to the local team from Pixar. Yeah. Um, But if they really want this movie to have some, you know, some star power, some, some gravitas, you really push it over the edge, they let him speak. That would be... That would be like the ultimate cameo for you, wouldn't it? It would. It would just make me so happy. Yeah. Now, I'm not really familiar with the first three movies. Are there any big names attached to any of these uh, Toy Story movies? Well, there's this. Uh, there's some actors that are kind of important, like Tom Hanks and. Um, oh, from Bachelor Party. Okay. Yeah, that guy. He's still working. That's good. Yeah, George Went. Wallace Shawn is in it. You know, inconceivable. That guy. He plays uh-huh. Rex. Um, and I know okay. what you're hoping here, but it's not true. I do not appear in said film. Well, then their their only hope is to have Ricky uh, Ricky come <laughs> and, and say something. That's right. 
Uh, next, we've got an update. want to thank some of our listeners for giving us an update on some of the stories that we do. We, While we are almost all-knowing, we cannot be completely... Omniscient? Omniscient. There you go. That's why we pay you the big bucks. So, Mark, you, you covered uh, Colonel Sanders and Randy Bass a couple of episodes ago in that That's great right. story about the curse of the colonel yes. and uh, the Hanshin Tigers. Well, we had a listener... Uh, give us an update and point us towards actually towards their website. And this is an, this is a great website. If you want some more information on what actually went down with Colonel Sanders after he was pushed into the river. And you know, you do, <laughs> you can get the full story at the And uh, this is a great site. They get a lot of, uh, a lot of, information not only about that but just about japanese baseball and in particular the tigers and also you might want to check him out on twitter at the hanshin tiger and he posts a lot of good uh, npb stuff there that i've been following and he's got a podcast believe it or not that i've been listening to nice. you, anything about the tigers you want to you want to know he's he's is a good source of information you remember last week mark we talked about the stockton ports the a's single a team and the walk-up music promotion that they were playing? Yes, absolutely. Very interesting. So I did a little bit of follow-up, and this promotion is really going well. There was an article out about it this week about just how popular it was, and one team that you are very familiar with, the Seattle Mariners, caught wind of this. Oh. And they are actually in talk to buy out the entire games whenever the Mariners single A team, the Modesto Nuts, are in town. They just want to come right out and say, we'll buy, we'll buy all of the walk-up music when the Modesto Nuts are in town. That's so awesome. as to avoid any sort of embarrassing song being played when those batters go to the plate. <laughs> Probably a smart move. Yeah, that's it's an interesting uh, to be paying another team to to not play music. I I saw some video. There was a video of one batter going up to let it go by Frozen, which <laughs> <laughs> was interesting. So he did not uh, accidentally lose grip on the bat, did he? No, because but I I awesome. could tell he was distracted walking up to the plate. So if he had just let it go, that would have been like the greatest follow up. <laughs> So I am getting ready though to to go up to Stockton. I get, I'm I'm checking the schedule to see. I want, probably want to go on on a weekend, and I definitely want to get there early because we need to make sure that there's some Kenny Rogers when somebody goes to the plate. Absolutely. Actually, I had an update too, Jeff. Oh, yeah. Remember we talked about um, you know if you get four four strikeouts in one game, that's the golden sombrero. Five is winning the lotto. And uh, I, I asked our listeners to come up with what six strikeouts in one game should be. And I, I, I've got the top three, my favorite three on here so from, from listeners. This gentleman named Jack said the actual name for it is, is called The Horn. The Horn. Uh, after, is it Sam Horn? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who struck out six times in one that game. Would, in one that game. sucks because I have so many Sam Horn rookie cards. I'm just waiting for him to... T- <laughs> well... He's, he's got a piece of baseball history named after him, so that's all right. Well, good for him. I'm sure that'll drive right. the value of those rookie cards up. That's right. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, the other, the, the, so that was my number one since it happened to be, you Factual. know, the actual name. I figure <laughs> I should bump it to number one. Uh, there was a listener named Little Mitchie 
who said we should call it the pink slip, <laughs> <laughs> which makes sense. So I like that one too. And then we have another listener named, what is this guy? Kevin K, something like that. And uh, he said it should be called the DFA, which if you're not a huge <laughs> baseball follower is designated for assignment. It's what they do to somebody when they're going to release them. So we can either call six strikeouts the horn, the pink slip, or the DFA, according to our listeners. <laughs> well, I think Sam Horn got both a pink slip and was DFA'd several times. So it all kind of ties it together. That makes sense. Well, I like those. Yeah, I, I, I like I like the pink slip and, and uh, DFA. Those are. Yeah, yeah those, those are definitely usable. Definitely. Let's let's make it happen. Anyway, that's my update. That's all I had, Jeff. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do so on the social medias. We can be found on both Twitter and Instagram at two strike noise. That is at TWO strike noise. So I think that'll do it for batting practice for our BP segment today. Mark, let's go change into our game uniforms. And uh, since you are much quicker at changing than I am, uh, I think you're going to go first today. I did a little, uh, I was doing a little research and I came across a, a name that I knew and I decided to do a little more research into him. He ended up being an interesting guy. His name is uh, Bill Veck, V-E-E-C-K, Bill Veck. All right. He started in baseball when he was really little. His dad, William Vec Sr., which you couldn't have guessed, I'm imagining. Um, he was by uh, Mr. Wrigley himself, William Wrigley. He was uh, named, he, he was a sports writer, but he was named by the club owner to be the vice president of the club. So apparently he showed off a lot of knowledge in his column because William Wrigley decided, I'm going to hire this guy and uh and make him the vp of the club well they won the national league pennant in 1918 so william wrigley promoted him to president of the club so he went from this is william beck senior went from being a uh, sports writer to president of the chicago cubs hmm. and he would give his son which the aptly named bill beck jr he would uh, have him learn all kinds of different things about team management so he had him you know working as a vendor he had him selling tickets. He had him in the grounds crew. And I couldn't find anything saying he was a scoreboard operator, but I'm, I'm thinking maybe, just maybe. <laughs> he pressed a couple buttons or back this, it would have been hanging some numbers up on. In that on center field, that center field manual scoreboard there. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we don't have those anymore because I'm just not that good at hanging stuff up. 1941 comes around and this is now the junior Bill Vec. We're just going to refer to him as Bill Vec from now on. He, uh, he partnered with a former Cubs player named Charlie Grimm, and they bought a AAA team. This AAA team was called the Milwaukee Brewers. They were AAA back then, and uh, they weren't the same team either. Uh, he, uh, he decided that they were going to do all kinds of unique promotions, and this is what Vec became known for, was all kinds of just strange and unique promotions. Stuff like he would give away live animals during Brewer <laughs> games. They would draw tickets. You might win a cow. Or a goat or something. Okay, I guess that's better than like a lion or... <laughs> right, right. I don't think they gave away, you know, like a mammoth or anything like that. <laughs> Which would have been really cool, but it would also have been very Jurassic Parkish. But anyway, okay, sorry. So uh, he would also schedule games that were super early morning for people that worked the overnight shift. <laughs> so you could get off work, say, at 5 a.m., you can go to a 7 a.m. baseball game. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's going to certainly draw you the largest crowds. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, anything, anything to get people in, you know, butts and seats. That's what mattered, I guess. Uh, they had lots of weddings at home play when the team was in town and when they were out of town. Yeah, so they did all kinds of, he, he just started his career promoting some unique things and, and opportunities. Um, it was, as I said, 1941. So soon Vec joined the United States Marine Corps. So he served, uh, he was still owning the Brewers. He was still co-owner. He served three years in the Marine Corps during World War II in an artillery unit. And uh, during this time, a recoiling artillery piece actually crushed his leg and it required the amputation of his foot. And after that, not too long after that, again, the leg above the knee. Over the Out. course of his life, he had 36 operations on mm. the leg. Does not no. sound like fun. Uh, interesting little thing I found out about him. He had a series of different wooden legs. He would change them out. And he was, <laughs> he was a, a terrible smoker. And he would cut holes in the wooden leg to use as an ashtray. I kid you not. It's funny, funny you say that because I might have more information on that later. Yeah, right on. He, uh, yeah. So I, I never thought about that myself, but uh, you know, if you've got a, if you've got something inanimate attached to you, you might as well use it as an ashtray. I guess. If I'm not sure. It. Wood ashtrays are always such a great idea, though. Five years went by. And the, uh, they won three American Association pennants in AAA, and Vec sold the Milwaukee Brewers and made a nice little profit off of it. So that was it. Beck, Bill Vec was out of baseball. Or was he? No. 1942, Bill Vec decided that he wanted to buy the Philadelphia Phillies. So he uh, met with an individual named Jerry Nugent, not Ted, Jerry Nugent. <laughs> he was the president of the Philadelphia Phillies. And what we found out later in, in Bill Vec's memoirs is that he actually intended to buy the Phillies and stock the whole team with Negro League stars. There were no, you know, as we've talked about, there were no formal rules saying that we couldn't have black players. Um, but it had just been like a handshake agreement. Bill Vec didn't care. He wanted to promote. He wanted to win. He wanted to make money. So he wanted to put the best team possible out there. And so basically he agreed to, to a price with the Phillies owner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, one of the great nicknames in baseball history. Uh, unless that's his, do you think his real name is Kennesaw Mountain? Because that's kind of creative. Anyway, he had an agreement in principle. When he got to Philly to make the deal, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, he was, a very, he was very much a segregationist. Okay, so by the time Vet gets to Philadelphia, Landis has worked on selling the Phillies to another National League owner. And so the, the Phillies were actually sold to Lumber Baron William D. Cox. And Vec did not get his opportunity to buy the Phillies and stock them with Negro League players. How cool would that have been, though? It would have been because that team would have been solid. You can, he could have gone out and got it's like signing the ultimate free agents. Like, do you think, though, that the other the other owners would have allowed it? I don't think they would have. I think I think they would have blocked him or something. Yeah, I think yeah. they probably would have been against it just because of that's that's a sign of the times, I guess, unfortunately. Um, but it would have been pretty awesome to see it, it, because he literally he could have if he had gone to the Negro Leagues and just taken their 25 best players, he would have dominated. The Phillies would have won 
you know, as many World Series in a row as he could keep the team together. Well, I, I think I think they would have won one World Series and then probably all the other owners would have immediately integrated. You would think, yeah. They see a, a plethora of free agent talent like that before there was even Kurt Flood or free agency. Yeah, I think they would have they would have just gone to town and, and I the Negro Leagues might have been over the next year, I think. Because I you know, everybody yeah. Yeah, sure. They they want to keep segregation because they're old white people at the time, but they also want to win and draw draw fans, and that would have definitely done it. Absolutely. By the way, here I just did look up Kennesaw Mountain Landis is his full name, no nickname. No kidding. It wasn't a so it was not one of my favorite nicknames. It's just a name. <laughs> anyway, after after he was unable to buy the Phillies. He was out of baseball completely, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, or was he? No, no, no. Bill Vec became a minority owner. He had about 250 grand. He put all of it into the Cleveland Indians in 1946. They let him make some promotional decisions and so on. He uh, immediately hired the clown prince of baseball, Max Patkin, to be one of the coaches. Uh, the fans absolutely loved it. If, if did the uh, coach is he yeah. doing his act in the in the, box, he was. the whole game? He was. I don't know if the whole game, but he was coaching first or third base, and he was you know wore the baggy pants and had the goofy face. And was and he number question mark? He was number question mark, I believe. Yep. So the 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 fans absolutely loved it. They loved packing. Uh, the AL thought it was a joke and they hated it, but it did uh, lead to the Indians' popularity increasing. And they got their games on the radio, which, of course, gave Vec more opportunities to promote. So in 1947, Bill Vec decides he's going to sign Negro League star Larry Doby, uh, you know, to a contract with the Indians. And this was going to make Larry Doby the first African-American player in the American League. Uh, it went over very well. Of course, Larry Doby definitely showed what he was made of. And the next year, Vec decided, shoot, that worked out so well. I'm going to go and get me the best pitcher in baseball. And he signed Satchel Paige at the age of 42. <laughs> I believe we've covered that we, in his time in Cleveland before. We have discussed Mr. Satchel Paige. And he came to Cleveland and, and he lit up the, uh, the crowds like he always did everywhere he went. So in 1948, Cleveland won its first World Series since 1920. Yay! And 1949, a big season coming up. He went through a nasty divorce. His money was tied up in the Indians, and he had to sell. So Bill Vec was no longer one of the owners of the Indians. And Bill Vec was out of baseball. Or was he? No. Two years later, 1950, Bill Vec was able to purchase a struggling team called the St. Louis Browns. So the Browns shared a ballpark with the St. Louis Cardinals. Vec wanted to be the only team in St. Louis, so he went out and he hired Rogers Hornsby, Marty Marion, and Dizzy Dean. Uh, Hornsby and Marion to be the managers of the team and Dizzy Dean as the announcer. So he took some of the most popular Cardinals of all time and he made them St. Louis Browns. And they shared a home park called Sportsman's Park. And he, of course, forked over enough money to decorate exclusively with St. Louis Browns memorabilia. So the Cardinals were <laughs> Cardinals were playing in what looked like the St. Louis Browns stadium. It's like when the when the the Jets and the Giants back in the Meadowlands day. I know they've got a new stadium now, but like everything yes. was Giants, even when the Jets were playing. Yeah, there. exactly like that. Yep. So he uh, 
he he still couldn't quite top the Cardinals in attendance. So that's when he became the Belvec that we know and love. And he started pulling some crazy stuff. Now, I love this quote because it kind of applies. I feel like it applies to my life, too. Bill Vex said, I try not to break the rules, but merely to test their elasticity. Well stated, sir. <laughs> Always looking for that loophole. That's right. So, most memorably, Vex signed a guy named Eddie Yadale. He was three foot seven, and he sent him up to pinch hit. So, you got this three foot seven dude, little person. Eddie Goodale walks on four pitches, of course, and he immediately replaces Goodale with a pinch runner. So pretty smart. All right. So so this is interesting. So we talked a couple of pods ago about Herb Washington, who was exclusively a pinch runner for the early 70s A's. Never had a career at bat. He would just pinch run. He had sprinter speed. Why wouldn't Goodale just be a pinch hitter, go up there, he could start a rally almost every time he goes up there, and then they pinch run for him. Man, you should have been managing the team, dude. That's I should have been. Yeah, maybe I've got a future here. Yeah, well, I wouldn't go that far because you see the next day, the American League president, Will Harridge, uh, said, no, you cannot use Eddie Goodale, and he, he voided his contract. Why couldn't you, though? Well, I, somebody would have, you could challenge that you, now, I would assume. You could challenge that now. I don't know what people would say. I don't know how it would go over, but uh, how would you defend it? How would <laughs> There's you def- no way you could defend it. <laughs> we don't allow short people. Oh my gosh. You can't be doing that. Altuve, you know? you're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Louis Polonia would never have made the big leagues in that. Anyway, so it, the, the Gadale stunt, he pulled it off. It, he couldn't do it anymore, but he had made the front page of every sports section in the country. Five days later, he held a promotion called Grandstand Manager's Day. And this was involving Vec and Connie Mack that were helping make the decisions. But they they gave out to thousands of regular fans. They gave them out these placards that, that held up yes, no, answer, and would answer about decisions that the manager would make. So a guy would get on base and, and Bill Vec would say, do you want him to try and steal second? And the fans would hold up yes or no or whatever. And uh, so it was it was Grandstand Manager's Day. And that, that game, just because of pure genius by the fans, the Browns won 5-3 to three and snapped a four-game losing streak. And they immediately fired their manager. I, they, sh- they could have and should have. Well, I don't know. It was Connie Mack. A year later, the uh, Cardinals owner, Fred Sy. I think that's how you said S-A-I-G-H. He was convicted of tax evasion and he had to put the Cardinals up for sale. And a lot of bids came in and Vec thought he was going to succeed in driving the Cardinals out of town because a lot of out of town bids were coming in. There was a, a owners, ownership group that wanted to move them to Houston. And what happened? But a, a little company called Anheuser-Busch decided they were going to come in and they bought the they bought the Cardinals for a much lower price than the teams that were going to move them or the ownership groups that were going to move them to different cities. So Anheuser Bush came in, saved the Cardinals. So they got this huge corporate sponsorship and, and now Vec knows he can't compete with that kind of a payroll. So he decides he's moving the Browns back to a familiar spot to Milwaukee. So he's going to move them there, but just before he gets to the Boston Braves, 
they moved to Milwaukee. So he doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get to go where he wanted to go. So he stole, he sold half of his stock to a Baltimore attorney named Clarence Miles and his ownership group. And so they moved them to Baltimore. They pushed Vec out and he no longer was a part owner of the team. He didn't get to uh, work with the team in Baltimore or anything like that. So the Cardinals did not leave the Browns. They left and became the Baltimore Orioles. So once again, Bill Vec was out of baseball. Or was he? Or was he? No. In 1959, he led an ownership group that bought a controlling interest in the Chicago White Sox. The White Sox then won their first pennant in 40 seasons and drew a team attendance record of 1.4 million fans. Vec immediately came in and he started, he put in what's called the exploding scoreboard. Uh, He's the guy that decided to put players' names on the uniforms. They were the, they were the first one. Back in 59. Hmm. They were. And uh, so he was doing all his crazy promotions. And, and unfortunately, in 1961, he got really, really sick. And he could, not, he could no longer work. And so sold his share of the team to John and Arthur Allen for $2.5 million. And then he spent a little bit of time working as a television commentator. But even that kind of strained him uh, because he was very ill. And it only lasted a little while. And then Vec was out of baseball. We, we might want to mention that if you remember, we talked about it when we did the Harry Carey podcast, that Vec was the one that hired Harry Carey. Harry did the one year here with Oakland, and it just wasn't for him. And the uh, Bill Vec got him back to Chicago. Well, not back to Chicago, to Chicago for the first time, where he worked for the White Sox for several years. That's right. I, and you're right. We did, we did discuss this at an earlier podcast. So that was, it was Bill Vec who saw the talent. It, it was a marriage made in heaven. I mean, like we discussed, it was, he was the one that saw Harry Carey mouthing the words to take me out to the ballpark and put the microphone in there and p- piped it out to the, I, uh, to the stands unbeknownst to Harry one day. And look at what that has become. I, uh, yes, it, he was actually the man who encouraged Harry Carey to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game out loud and to the Chicago faithful. And it became, oh, huge. I see, I, I did not get again to 1975. Beck was out of baseball, but he repurchased the White Sox from John Allen, who was the sole owner since 1969. And he was the only owner that was willing to keep the team in Chicago. And so all the other owners begrudgingly had to approve his purchase. The, the team was actually going to move to Seattle. But Bill mm-hmm. Vec bought the team himself and kept it in Chicago. So the White Sox could be the Seattle Mariners, or maybe they would be the Seattle White Sox. I don't know. But uh, they, they did not get their team until, what, 77. So Vec and his crazy promotions, he, uh, he, his, he had one that he was super famous for, or infamous for. I'm going to let you talk about that one here in a bit because I I don't want to go into it because you know a whole lot more about Disco Demolition Night than I do, dude. And just dis- just disco in general. And yeah, and uh, you still go to the disco, I believe. Oh, yes. Um, basically, free agency came along. Vec was not able to keep pouring money into uh, 
into the team. So he actually sold the White Sox in 1981 and retired to his home in Chicago. So Bill Vick was completely out of baseball, but not permanently because in 1984, he went to underwent two operations for lung cancer and he unfortunately passed away in 86. But the happy part is he was elected five years later to the Baseball Hall of Fame, becoming forever a part of baseball legend and lore. Bill Vick, no longer out of baseball, but in baseball permanently. All right, so you ready to you ready to talk about probably his most infamous promotion? Absolutely. And, and you know what? I think our listeners are sick of hearing from me anyway. So take it, Jeff. Let us know what's going on with that. So first of all, let me say that this was actually not his promotion. Uh, he took the heat for it. Uh, and I'll get into this a little bit later, but this was actually uh, his son Mike's promotion. But Bill Vec being the owner and really kind of being a stand-up guy, he took all the heat for this, <laughs> which is pretty impressive. But uh, what we're talking about is the infamous Disco Demolition promotion. It took place on July took place on July 12th, 1979, a scheduled doubleheader between the Tigers and the White Sox at Old Comiskey Park. Now, the White Sox were not very good at this point. Um, they had not yet uh, started to wear shorts as uh, part of their jerseys, um, but they, they, they were wearing those tops that I like. They were untucked. They had a collar. It's a good look. <laughs> I wish we could bring back some untucked jerseys. I've seen the collared ones. Those are interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I think those are the ones that Chris Sale actually cut up when he was on the White Sox and wouldn't pitch in. Gotcha. So uh, they'd only been averaging about 18,000 a game, which to me as an A's fan sounds incredible. But uh, 18,000 in a cavernous stadium. This old Comiskey sat almost 45,000. So it's less than half full every night just about. Uh, owner Bill Veck's son, Mike Veck, was in charge of the promotions department. So score one for nepotism there. But I, Mike was also doing what Bill did. He, he went and, and worked in several different departments to get to know the, the team as a whole. So Mike needed, again, as you said, Mike needed to get butts in seats. And this is when somebody told him about a local DJ that would often scratch up a disco record on the air and then blow it up. Using using sound effects, of course, not actual explosives in the studio. Disco uh, at the time very popular, but not with everybody. No, not with everybody. It was it was uh, it was it was very a very divisive subject. It was from what I saw. So a, lo- a light bulb went off in his head, and he immediately got in touch with WLUP and the station's sale man- sales manager Jeff Schwartz. And the DJ in question, whose name was Steve Dahl. The White Sox were, as you mentioned, known for their exploding scoreboard in center field, which was one of Bill Veck's greatest concoctions. And the idea was brought up that there was an exploding scoreboard in center field. We've got a DJ that's blowing up disco records every morning. Can we get that on the field? Can we combine these two things? And from there, the idea was born. So what they came up with was if you bring a disco record to be blown up between the games, the doubleheader, you get in for 98 cents. WLUP was uh, on the FM dial 98, thus the price. Ah, such a deal. Such a deal. Well, you think that's a deal. Beer was also 90 cents that night. 
You got to be kidding me. <laughs> so your beer is actually less than the ticket, which is a rarity. <laughs> So Dahl did not think this was a good idea. He did not think that this would draw anybody. He knew the socks weren't good. Nobody was going to the games. And he didn't want to go stand out in front of a couple of thousand people and blow up some records that they didn't care about. First, a little background on Dahl. He had previously been fired from station WDAI because it had switched from the rock format to disco. And he did not care for that. Uh, He had just joined WLUP two months earlier, so just right before the season started, the baseball season started. But he had drawn a pretty big following in that short time because of his anti-disco tirades on his morning show. He was really one of the first DJs that did what we think of today as a morning show, where it's kind of 50-50 music, 50-50, you know. Right. Opinions, uh, making jokes, doing skits, that kind of stuff. A morning show, like we would see a typical morning show now. Yeah. So Dahl thought even if they had doubled the attendance for this promotion, it was still going to be a failure because the park was so big it would just look empty. But nonetheless, they pushed forward. The day of the promotion, Bill Vec proclaimed that he was expecting 35,000. Head of security at Comiskey laughed at this. He didn't believe it would happen, nor did he prepare for it. So again, remember this this park, Old Comiskey Park, used to seat 45,000. So they were expecting a good crowd, not a sellout. So Dahl and some of the others from WLUP pull up to the stadium a little bit before the first game, and there are people everywhere. Long lines of the ticket office, even after they, the entire place was sold out, there are still reportedly thousands of people who can't get into the stadium. Now, this was not just all, you know, drug-fueled rock and roll fans. There were families there, a lot of families, because a family of five could go to a doubleheader for under $5. So this was, you know, this is a great deal. So there's all these people outside wanting to buy tickets that can't get in because there aren't any more. So they start to get upset, as you can imagine. So the ticket booths at this point, they were not attached to the stadium. They were just kind of little wooden shacks, essentially. And the fans start rocking these shacks like you see people do, you know, when they want to turn over a car or something because they're they, I don't know if they thought they were going to shake some more tickets out, but whatever. So Vex says the old guys and he this is a quote, the old guys inside the booths are getting worried and anxious. So we move 15 security guards from the field out there. That was my mistake. So so this stadium's completely sold out, 90 cent beer, a bunch of angry people that hate disco are there, and they're removing people from the field, the field security, moving them outside. Yeah. Sounds like a recipe for something. Yeah, it definitely was. So the first game starts, the stands are packed, of course. Not a lot of people there, as you can imagine, cared about the game on the field. They were enjoying cheap beer, and I found a lot of quotes saying that a lot of the crowd was more stoned than drunk. Uh, they also had records that they hated in their hands. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. Well, so the, throughout the first game, records are being sent to the field like Frisbees. People are, you know, they're <laughs> drunk, they're high, they've got these disco records. A lot of a lot of interviews I read, people, because they hated disco, they didn't own disco records, so they would go to their parents or their friend's house and just steal the records. God, that's terrifying. <laughs> so they've got all these records, and you know, you can throw, well, I some of our listeners might not know what a record actually looks like, but, it, you know, it's a big, big round vinyl 
projectile that you can throw like a, I don't even want to say a, a frisbee. I want to say more like a ninja star because it is, it just goes straight and fast. It's definitely thinner and sharper than a frisbee. Yeah, it, it could do some damage. So some players actually opted to wear their batting helmets while they were on defense to perfect to protect themselves because there are <laughs> there are records landing on the field during play. <laughs> oh my gosh. So Tigers reliever Aurelio Lopez actually refused to warm up because fans were throwing records into the bullpen. They were also throwing firecrackers as oh, well. Geez. The first game ends like you listening to me telling this story, nobody at the game cared what the score was or who won. <laughs> but the Tigers, the Tigers won four to four to one. Now we're getting ready for their promotion to start. Uh, to start the promotion, Dahl and his sidekick and a model ride out onto the field in full military outfits. And Dahl is wearing a general's hat along with his cool shades. And they're in the back of an army jeep. They make their way to center field and they they get on a microphone and they lead the crowd in a chant of disco sucks. <laughs> well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight. We got them in a giant box and we're going to blow them up real good. Now, I appreciate you coming, but most of all, we appreciate you listening to us every morning, supporting us, and, uh, hey, it's because of you that this is happening tonight, okay? Not because of us. We're merely a vehicle for your thoughts. Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! You blow those records up real good, as opposed to just kind of... Partially blowing that's a up. that's a that's actually a quote from uh what what was the show oh uh sctv i don't know what that show is uh second city tv was on right after saturday night live back in like the 70s and early 80s john candy and eugene levy and those guys oh no he oh. had a he had a segment called big time celebrity blow up and he, he'd have celebrities quote unquote on and then he would blow them up boy he blowed up good blowed up real good Ah, I, that must have, that would be probably timely. He was probably, that was probably a pop culture reference that went right over my head. There you go. <laughs> so out comes a large wooden box full of records. They plant some, you know, they didn't plant. They had it obviously all planned. Pyrotechnics were already in the box. They hit the button, bang. And it was, it was a big bang. too. It was a little bit more than they, than they expected to prove. <laughs> probably a little too much <laughs> so records come out up in the air 25 to 30 feet smoke everywhere and the crowd goes nuts so that was supposed to be the end of it they were going to clean up you know the ground screws finishing dragging the infield getting ready for the second game players start to filter back onto the field they're, they're getting ready to warm up for the second game ken kravick was the starter for the Sox in the second game. He went to the bullpen to try and warm up, but more records were still coming from the stands. So he had actually, he even said that a shoe flew past him. <laughs> well, you did so, say there was plenty of uh, alcohol and drugs. I wouldn't yep. put that beyond anyone. So he actually headed out to the main mound, you know, in the middle of the diamond and started warming up there. And there is video because this game was being televised on Channel 44 in Chicago. And uh, being broadcast by none other than Harry Carey 
and Jimmy Pearsall. So in between, uh, Jimmy Pearsall is is watching this. Harry Carey is, I guess, having a hot dog or a Coke and a smile or something. But uh, Jimmy Pearsall is describing what's going on. He's just filling time between games. So there's actual video of, of everybody cleaning up, and you can even see Ken Kravick warming up in the middle of the diamond on the mound. And then this one kid runs onto the field from center field and he slides into second and he pulls the bag up over his head and he starts, you know, waving it around and it was on from there. Fans started jumping on the field from every direction and and we'll put a link to the, uh, to the video here. I mean, it is literally, it's like a a feeding frenzy, (laughs) just people jumping everywhere onto the field and just immediately running to to not really second base just kind of the center field where the where the records were blown up they went there they went to second base they they just converged on the entire diamond people were climbing the foul poles i don't know where they thought they were going to go with that uh, they're sitting on home plate digging up grass they were setting fires Oh my god out in out in center field where the where the records were exploded i think they had gathered up a lot of the, the the exploded records and they set them on fire so much so that once they put it out it was so soggy that when when Bill Vec afterwards was uh, was surveying the field he went and stepped there and his uh, his peg leg got stuck oh. in the mud oh, no. <laughs> so he just pulled it he just pulled it out and walked with it, with it in his hand yeah, that's awesome they uh they also uh apparently tore urinals off the walls in the bathrooms and brought them out to the field. How how is that possible? I, what, did, they, did they have chief from one flew over the cuckoo's nest? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they're doing all of this stuff. They even eventually almost completely dug up home plate. So if you don't know how home plate it, home plate is generally all you see is is the top of you know home plate there is usually two to three feet of cement attached to it buried in the ground underneath it but these these uh, these fans were very uh very industrious and uh, almost dug up home plate i'm sorry if they were removing urinals i think digging up home plate was like just an afterthought probably child's play yeah nothing <laughs> So, like I said, Jimmy Pearsall is broadcasting this on TV, and he is describing the site in horror. He has got like a he's got a, a local uh, local uh, newspaper columnist there with him, just filling time. And I mean, they are just disgusted. I, if you want the true definition of somebody who was considered a square at this time, these two are it. Jimmy Pearsall back in the ballpark, and I'm sure glad. You people see what's going on here at Comiskey Park. One of the saddest sights I've ever seen in a ballpark in my life. This garbage of demolishing a record has turned into a fiasco. My guest right now is Bill Gleason. And Bill, after all the years you've been in baseball, I know you haven't ever seen anything like this. Nor has anyone else, except after the uh, final game of a World Series in Shea Stadium. It seemed to me, Jimmy, that. the crowd on the field that we now have was uh, inevitable. I just watching, you could sense that they were going to break out. And all of the kids in the lower deck who want to go out will be out there now. And the White Sox may have 
to forfeit the second game. You know, that's a shame, too. They <laughs> that's awesome. Nancy Faust. I'm not sure if you know that name. That is, uh, she was the longtime organist for the White Sox. She is super famous. There's a plaque in the new park dedicated to her. But during this whole thing, she's continuing to play the organ. <laughs> she's just... <laughs> And actually where she sat, there were actually a group of nuns reportedly sitting next to her. And they they couldn't understand because the whole time the crowd is still chanting disco socks. And but these nuns couldn't understand what they were saying. So reportedly, Nancy leaned over and told them that they were saying, let's go socks. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, Bill Veck himself, along with Harry Carey, got on the PA and implored the fans implored the fans to to go back to their seats. We got a second game. Please go back. As you can guess, that did not work. Not even when Harry got on the microphone, everybody cheered. But he was in a lot of the reports I I saw said that Harry was more excited that everybody cheered for him than trying to get everybody back to their seats. (laughs) So what did Harry do? He broke out and take me out to the ball game. (laughs) (laughs) Started singing like it was a seventh inning stretch. Obviously, that didn't work. Uh, It you know, nobody nobody was moving. So then the police show up. They come in from center field. They are coming in two by two on horses, billy clubs in hand. Now, if you if you don't know, uh, the summer of 1968, the Democratic National Convention was held in Chicago, and there was a lot of violence that took place in Grant Park. Yes, and that was still fresh. I mean, this is uh, just about a decade removed, but it was still fresh on everybody's mind. And the violence that had that had gone on there, and the police had been involved in that. So when the police rode in on horseback, you know, this was a this was a real threat that people didn't want to get caught up in, you know, something that was that was that ugly. So the crowd started to leave the field. The, the, the field was now cleared. Umpires and Vec uh, went around and surveyed the damage. There was there's turf t- torn up all around the pitcher's mound. Uh, like I said, there, it was soggy and burnt out in center field. There was just a lot of damage. The batting cage had been set on fire. Just damage <laughs> everywhere. Uh, so it was, it was determined. Vec swore that they could have played. But every the video I saw, there's just no way. Uh, so the the umpires to, they they postponed the game, and then the next day, I believe, after the umpires talked to the league office, they were they forfeited the game because this was clearly something that they could have prevented that, that caused the game from not being able to be played. Uh, the crowd eventually got out of the stadium about one or two o'clock they cleared everybody it was difficult initially to get people out of the place because to do that they needed to open the doors that they had closed because of all those people that didn't have tickets that were outside so they opened the doors up to try and get people out and all it did was let all those people that were outside come in wanting to be part of this spectacle so it was it was madhouse (laughs) that's just crazy there were uh, only four injuries reported, though, none of them serious, and only 39 arrests. Only 39? W- w- with the amount of people, when you watch this video, the amount yeah. of people that were on this field. I said that the stadium seats 45,000 at that time. Well, again, it was sold out. There is video of people just climbing, scaling the walls outside and climbing through windows and crevasses to get in the stadium. So there was... No doubt 
more than 45,000 people in, you know, in the stadium when this all went down. It's, so, it's one of those things. People love a crowd. If there's a big crowd. People show up. No crowd. Nobody comes to it. Yeah. And, you know, you <laughs> if you <laughs> if you mix disco in there, people are going to want to come because they love their disco. <laughs> but that so. is, like I said, uh, Bill Vec stood up and, and he absolutely, you know, <laughs> stood up for his son and said that this was his fault. You know, he did it all. He's the owner. Mike Vec was really proud of his father for doing that but you know he wasn't shying away he was telling everybody that was him but so that is the story of the probably the most notorious promotion in the history of major league baseball disco demolition disco demolition night now i have a bit of a follow-up here this this is very interesting at least to me we'll see if anybody else thinks it is um the legacy of bill veck lives on with mike veck who is, uh, he's the owner of the independent minor league team, the St. Paul Saints. Yep. And he likes to do some pretty fun promotions as well. Well, there's one coming up, and and I wish we could get there. Maybe we want to start a GoFundMe so we could be there and, and, and report on it. But June 25th, Disco <laughs> Premonition Night with Mike Vec. <laughs> I kid you not, and here is the description. It was one of the most infamous nights in all of Major League Baseball history, and now it's time to make amends. Forty years later, our very own president, Mike Veck, will don his ruffled shirt, gold jewelry, and throw on some platform boots on Disco Premonition Night. Wow. And uh, it says here, um, Mike's going to invite fans to stay after the game for a giant disco party that will include the largest disco ball ever made, 20 feet in diameter. It will hang above the field from a crane. It's going to be out of sight, man. Wow. Yeah, I think we need to go. I want to go to Disco Premonition Night. (laughs) Now, the St. Paul Saints, I have heard, I mean, they've been, uh, you know, in terms of an independent team, meaning they are not affiliated with Major League Baseball in in, in any way or any team. Yeah, they've been around for a while. They've had a lot of players that couldn't get jobs. I'm halfway surprised Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel aren't on their opening day roster. But I mean, I remember uh, several players that, you know, when they couldn't catch on with a team, they would go and they'd play for the St. Paul Saints. And I, if uh-huh. I am not correct, I think Bill Murray also owns part of the St. Paul Saints. Uh, last I looked, he was a co-owner with that. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, that's a, and and apparently I'm just looking here. Uh, Vec is also a part owner of the Charleston River Dogs. Oh, I did not know that. Huh. That's pretty cool. But yeah, the the Vec. I wonder if they have weird promotions too. Well, that is that is very cool. That uh, this was a fun a fun topic, uh, and obviously we kind of planned this for you to do to do Bill Vec and then for me to do one of the the Vec promotions that is the most infamous. That was uh, that was fun to to read about that and to, especially to hear what kind of led up to it from your end. It was, it was fun to research um, and, uh, and find out more about this guy. My dad always told me he was a great promoter, um, but I did not know some of the crazy things that he was able to pull off and how long he had been in baseball with so many different teams. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know any of that either. That's good stuff. All right. Well, let's now move on from the meat 
and potatoes of our show. Let's head to the we'll 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 clean the plate here and and head for dessert, which as you can guess, dessert is that sweet, sweet sound of the second best theme song. Oh yes. Your second best Better than most of the rest Not better than number one Number one is better than anyone So this portion of the show uh, is a portion we like to call second best. This is where we don't want to know what the best answer is to a a question. We want to know what is the second best answer to a question. And this week, uh, I have actually got the topic. Uh, Mark does not know what the topic is. I am going to shortly tell him what it is. He can uh, put on his tinfoil hat and start thinking about what his answers are going to be. While I will tell you, the listener, uh, what my what I think the best answer is, but more importantly, what I think the second best answer is. So are you ready to do this, Mark? Um, not quite. Okay, nope. I am now. All right, good, 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 good. So I want to know, and, and we're going to limit this to uh, times when y- this could not have happened before you were born. Okay. I want to know what your second best World Series moment was. Ooh. So it can't, we, we can't do something like we've covered the, uh, the Bill Mazeroski, you know, right. home run to beat the Yankees. We can't do that. You can't do Robbie Thompson's shot heard around the world. Actually, okay. that wasn't even a World Series moment. So that was, a, that was that yeah, was, it was a pennant, <laughs> but close enough. So uh, it's got to be sometime after you were born so that you've got a memory of it when it happened. Okay. I, I, right. I think I've got, I got a couple in my head. I just got to figure out what order to put them in. Yeah. Now this will be, I'm, I'm interested to hear yours because two of mine have a team because I don't want to brag, but my team has actually won a world series since I've been alive. Um, <laughs> my team has not won one at all. And hopefully while I'm still alive, they'll, they'll pull one off. Yeah, so I, you know, Kirk Gibson came to mind uh-huh. for me. I thought you'd hate that one. I do, I do, but it was such a moment, and I, I would honestly have to list that as the best World Series moment that I have seen. Not the second, but best, right. but the best, because you know the A's were just so dominant in in '88, and. You know, especially to, uh, I'm sorry, especially Dennis Eckersley, who gave up. Yeah, the I'm, yeah, and, and then to have this this Kirk Gibson, you know, the superstar that couldn't play because he was too injured, to have him hobble out there in in game one and to come up to face Dennis Eckersley in the bottom of the ninth and to hit a bomb to right field and to have him kind of limp around and pumping his fist. I, uh, you know, even though it was against the A's, it's hard to to fathom for me a better World Series moment than that. That's pretty crazy, yeah. So my second best is going to have to be Joe Carter's walk-off home run in Game 6 in the 1993 World Series. You, you stole my first best, dude. Well, it, it's, as long as it's not your second best, that's what I really want to hear, but... This was uh, this was a tough World Series for me. I remember right where I was. I was in college. Uh, I'd been rooting 
for other teams to win the World Series, uh, but the Blue Jays had a kind of a, a stranglehold on it around this time. And uh, also, Ricky Henderson was on the Blue Jays at this point. He of course. Came, came over on a, a, a trade deadline acquisition. So, you know, as much as I didn't like the Blue Jays, I, I was rooting for them. And uh, I heard a recent interview with Ricky Henderson, who is... Uh, very capable of telling you, uh, <laughs> telling everybody um, his accomplishments, should we He's say? A confident guy. Yeah. Well, he said that Joe Carter owes that home run to him because him dancing off of second base uh, was causing Mitch Williams to pay attention to him rather than Joe Carter, who was at the plate. And then he, of course, served one up and Joe Carter took it deep to left field for a three run home run to win the World Series. That that was an amazing moment. It was going to be my first, uh, my first World Series moment. But interesting that you said about Ricky, because there's actually some truth to Ricky, you know, distracting Mitch Williams. Uh, Mitch Williams was not used to facing a team with that kind of speed, a guy like Ricky Henderson being on base. So he had tried to learn a slide step style of uh, delivery. And he had never thrown that before. And so why not try it out in game six of the World Series? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. He didn't want Ricky to run, so he's using a slide step. And that's when Carter hit the home run. So who knows uh, if Ricky had something to do with it or not? It's possible. Well, to as, say he uh, did. As I've heard him, I heard it said that he discombobulated him. <laughs> All right. So those are my two, my, my, my best. World Series moment and my second best. So you can either change your, what well, it's kind of hard to change your best. No, but uh, <laughs> you can maybe rethink it. But let's hear what uh, what is your best World Series moment, and then what do you think is the second best World Series moment? Okay, my best World Series moment uh, was when Mitch Williams was closing for Philly. Oh wait, we already went over this. <laughs> uh, that actually, I remember where I was too. I was at this place called the Ale House with my buddies and. And uh, Joe Carter hit that home run, and it was just, like, unbelievable. You know, the, he did the ultimate. He won the World Series with one swing. So it was pretty incredible. But uh, my second favorite moment, this might uh, surprise a few people, but it is um, my second favorite World Series moment of all time comes from the 2001 World Series. Okay. 2001. So, now Yes. So Arizona I, the, against the Yankees. And New York. Yep. Yes. And they, they were tied at three games apiece. Randy Johnson's pitching for Arizona because he pitched like the whole series, I think. And the Yankees bring in Mariano Rivera. It's two to one Yankees. Joe Torre brings in Rivera for a, well, a two inning save, which was not rare. He did that all the time with Rivera. And he struck out the side. That brought actually brought his postseason ARA to 0.7. So this is a guy that's tough to beat. Okay. Very tough to beat. And so he crushed him in the eighth inning. Okay. So they bring in again, Mariano Rivera for the ninth inning and Mark Grace leads off with a single. And there's a, a, a bunt attempt by Damian Miller and Rivera or Rivera picks up the ball and throws to Jeter to try and get the double play, get the lead runner. And, Jeter got all tangled up in, in the pinch runner's uh, legs too. And he was sliding in to break up the double play. And so everybody was safe. Then Jay Bell came up 
and uh, Rivera came down off the mound this time, picked up the ball and did throw the runner out at third base. Uh, then you got uh, who was up next? Womack and Tony he, Womack. Yes, and he double he had a double and tied the game up. So Rivera blew the save, believe it or not. And um, <clears throat> then let's see, he hit Craig Council with the next pitch, or maybe it was a couple pitches later. But anyway, loaded the bases. So the bases are loaded, and up comes this dude, Luis Gonzalez, who is one of my idols now. And he just kind of poked this soft single. Um, the, the infield was drawn in. It barely got to the outfield. And J-Bell scored the winning run. And the Yankees lost the World Series. And all was well with the world because of my hero, Luis Gonzalez. Thank you, Luis, for making my second best World Series moment of all time possible. You seem to relish in any story that ends with the Yankees losing the World Series. I I do relish in it. I it it's like my because they never lose. You know, it was they had won what three in a row, and yeah, they, they were trying they to win their fourth in a row. And I was like so sick of it. So that thank goodness that uh, Luis Gonzalez was able to fight off a pitch from the greatest closer of all time and and shut down that fourth in a row game. Our World Series, I wouldn't want to see that happen. Now, I could be incorrect. It was either Game 7 or Game 1, but I'm fairly certain it was Game 7 that uh, Ricky Henderson threw out the first pitch of that game. Really? I am fairly certain it was Game 7. It might have been Game 1. It was in Arizona, so it was one of those two games. But uh, it was one of those games. Maybe somebody can, can write in and let us know. But... All right. So that, yeah, that's the, no, that was, I remember that. That was, yeah. that was, that was quite a world series because that was 2001. So that was right after 9 11. It you know, was. Baseball had taken the break. And then to have a New York team be in the, in the world series was, was something that was pretty special. And you, you got to remember, I was double upset because they had knocked out my Mariners who had won 116 games that season. Yeah. We were yep. supposed to cruise to that world series, stinking Yankees did it again to me <laughs> all right so there you have it there is our second best uh answer from both mark and i about world series that we have uh world series moments that we have been alive to witness good 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 stuff uh like to remind you here uh if you want to get in touch with us i i touched on it earlier uh, at the beginning of the podcast but if you would like to get in touch with us we can be found on both instagram and twitter at to strike noise that is at TWO strike noise. Uh, we would also, if we can ask a favor of you, wherever you are listening to us, if you could go ahead and drop us a review, leave us some comments, or you know, just uh, hit up that five star review. I, I hear that's the best. Uh, that really helps us, helps other people find us, helps our podcast grow. Uh, Mark, I am looking through my calendar again here as I do about this time of the podcast. I wanted to know if we could do this again next week. You know, I think we should. I, I've got a lot more to talk about. All right. Well, then let's do that. Uh, we will be back again next week with another episode. We'd like to uh, implore you to join us, if you will. Uh, so that will do it for this week's episode of Two Strike Noise. Thanks, guys. God bless you. Have a great day. 